There we go. Turn the mic on. I guess it's my job now, huh? <laughs> All right. I, I don't love bitching about refs. I think it just becomes too much. And I really do believe this de- deep down in my core that this market in particular bitches and moans about officiating more than others. I, I think that we are, we're the Michael Jordan of crying about the refs. We are. We just, we dominate. You know, if there's one market, you got to go, hey, who is the biggest crybaby about the refs? It's city of Toronto. We do it. We, we really, really do it. I'm sure there are like, like there are weight, there are weight classes to this, right? I'm sure people in, uh, this is just random, but Jets fans, like there's some that feel like there's things, Oilers fans, but in terms of a major city, one of the biggest five cities in North America, we're at the top of the pile. We, we have long believed there is a conspiracy against our teams, whether it's, hey, the Leafs don't get calls because the refs are from here. There's a lot of refs from Canada and they don't want to, they're from Toronto, they're from the GTA. They don't want to seem biased and so the bias flips on them, okay? Even though we ignore stuff like, you know, the command center being here and the Leafs being, whatever. The, the, hey, the Leafs, the, the NHL wants the American teams to do well anyway because they want to grow in the States. Okay, this is the reasons for it, right? We've heard it all before. We know about the Leafs. This goes back to my childhood. The first thing, the first thing that I was like even made aware of with sports was Gretzky high stick, right? Gilmore getting high sticks. You go, that's the thing. Hey, son, welcome to the world. Welcome to sports. The, the rest are against you. They high sticked our best player and nobody did anything about it. And if it wasn't for that, you would have walked into a world with Stanley Cups and glory. And instead, nothing. Because of the refs. God, you knew referees' names early on, right? And now we know another ref's name because he's like a rival to the city. But anyway, you baseball, we all know how it works, right? God, 2015, it's one of the things that I'll remember is like the umpiring. And, and we'll remember even too is the, the Amish kid who clearly pulled the ball back from the fence. It wasn't a home run. I'm sorry, it never will be. And that... Amish kid, he, he robbed us. He took his break from building barns and came down Kansas City and stole a World Series from the Toronto Blue Jays. The Raptors, we know how that works. We've known how that works for a long time. It's, it's like even in the coverage of the team, the Raptors have so much weight towards the officiating. You're watching the game some nights and I'm like, can we just watch the game without spending every second talking about the officiating and feeling like it's one way or the other? Last night was our Super Bowl. It was the moment we were all waiting for. Actual, justified, horrific officiating. I, I, I watch that game. I finished Leafs talk and I'm like, I can't wait. Raptors are back. They're going to play the Lakers. They've got no Pirtle. I want to see what the rotation is. Thad Young is getting in the starting lineup. That's how thin they are up front. You go, huh, is Jakob Pirtle worth $20 million when I don't really miss him? Was he worth the first-round pick when you don't really miss him against the team with all the centers? Uh, but then you go, well, Thad Young's in there, so maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, you, you choose your own adventure there. But the Raptors, and I was trying to save this stat, but Armin got to it this morning. He texted me, did you see this? And I went, yeah, of course I saw because I was watching the game, and it was the number one stat of the night. Um, 
But his Lakers, where he has the audacity to wear his Lakers hat into work today, by the way. This Lakers fan arm is okay. Like my my producer. He he wears he wears his Lakers hat in. He texts me the Lakers. I had it, but I wanted to surprise him with it. The Lakers were 19 of 23 from the free throw line in the fourth quarter. The Raptors, one of two. I I actually think that the least egregious of the calls was the moving screen for the Scotty Barnes game tying three. Like if I'm just being cards on the table, if that thing happens in a vacuum, if the officiating was done well throughout the fourth quarter, RJ's it's a bit of a moving screen. He shovels the ball off and he's kind of moving still to his left and he, he impedes the defender and Scotty knocks it down because he's got a wide open shot. But in the context of everything that was happening in that fourth quarter and the whistle that the Lakers were getting in comparison to the Raptors, when this was a chippy affair, this was a game where R.J. Barrett, who, God, I love R.J. Barrett. I, I knew I was going to love R.J. Barrett and I knew that when everyone was going crazy about quickly, and me too, and quickly's been great, and quickly has been a revelation for this team so far. But I knew I was going to love R.J. Barrett, but I was like, when he was, when he was going at, D'Angelo Russell, who I view as one of the, let's just, I, I was going to get lowly person. I don't really like D'Angelo Russell. Okay. Uh, that's my position on D'Angelo Russell. And to see RJ Barrett go at him and then start to take over the, he made that beautiful pass, steals the ball, goes into transition, finds Gary Trent for a three, like cross court and drills him with it. Not selfish. Awesome player. I'm enamored by RJ Barrett right now, but for a chippy basketball game, one that's the reason I bring that up is because reps should be on high alert there, right? They're going, we got to make sure that none of this gets out of hand because basically um, Christian Wood is taking every opportunity he can when he's setting a screen to try to put his shoulder into a Raptors player. He's trying to be like the enforcer out there. And you can just tell the, the league has already had Draymond choke somebody out this year. They've already had Draymond in his podcast and all these different, they probably want to avoid any type of fracas, in on the court. So the refs are on high alert and Ben Taylor, the rival, the already rival of the Toronto Raptors and Fred Van Vliet specifically, for those of you that don't know and are listening to this pod and haven't listened to anything else, or this is your first kind of deep dive into what happened last night, in the Raptors game and why you're waking up to memes of the Raptors coach, which I'm going to play the audio in a second. If you haven't heard that Ben Taylor is the ref that last year, remember I had Tom Habershow on and he broke the news that the league went, Hey, you need to start, we need to figure this out between you and Fred Van Vliet because the, the stats are getting pretty uncomfortable here when it comes to you versus Fred Van Vliet and the officiating. And it's kind of hard to ignore the amount of text that you've given this guy versus what he's had throughout the rest of his career. Hey, Fred's sat at the podium with that beautiful sweater and said, you know, some refs call the game well, and then some guys make it about themselves. And he was talking about Ben Taylor, the ref from last night's game and last night's ref called one of the worst fourth quarters, one of the most one-sided fourth quarters that I've seen in a basketball game in quite some time. And, and I watch a lot of basketball and I do not bitch about the referees. I just think my take on refs is they're all bad. They're all criminals. Like none of them are good. Most of them want to just insert themselves. I think like if you get into that career, you have bad intentions. You, you want to be a star. You want to be involved in this. Hockey refs, I kind of say should be paid a little bit because they have to be able to skate, right? It's a harder job to be able to do. Um, most other officials, I think the only reason that you deserve the paychecks you get is because we don't want you to be corrupt. <laughs> we don't want, 
we don't want more Tim Donahue's. That's the only reason that you deserve this money. And for whatever reason, like you guys, every opportunity show your, you show your, you show your ass because you do these commercials like the NBA wrestler, like, would you say that to a ref's face where they ask a fan, what do you think of this call? And they go, that call sucks. And then a ref pops out of the bushes and they go, would you say it to my face? The fans are like, yeah, you suck, ref. You suck. Stop making this about you. We shouldn't know any of the ref's names. Hockey even. That's what started the season this year. Who's the ref in the very first game of the year? Drops the puck between Bedard and Sidney Crosby. He's like, I'm a part of the show, everyone. Hey, Connor, welcome to the league. Drop the puck. Shut up. My God. None of you guys are being paid to see. For the love of God. Anyway, this guy decides to give the Lakers just an incredible hometown whistle. Just an unbelievable whistle. And after the game, their head coach, Darko Ryakovich, the Raptors head coach, he does not take it well. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Doug. That's, that's, that's outrageous. What happened tonight, this is completely BS. This is shame. Shame for the referees, shame for the league to allow this. 23 free throws for them, and we get two free throws in the, in the fourth quarter. Like, how to play the game. I, all, I understand uh, respect for all-stars and all that, but we have star players on our team as well. How's possible as Scotty Barnes, who is all-star caliber player in this league, he goes every single time to the rim with force and trying to get, get uh, to, to the rim without flopping and, and not trying to get foul calls. He gets two uh, free throws for the whole game. How is that possible? How are you going to explain that, that, that to me? They had to win tonight? If that's, if that's the case, just let us know so we don't show up for the game. Just give them a win. But that, that was not fair tonight. And this is not happening first time for us. Scotty Barnes is going to be all-star. He's going to be the face of this league. And what, what's happening over here during whole season, I've been holding you back. It's a complete crap. First of all, Armin, if you don't make 45 drops out of that, you're fired. <laughs> you're, if your first thought is not, boy, I've already chopped this thing up and I have 45 drops for this for the rest of time, pack your bags. Pack your little Lakers hat into a box and get out. Head down to old California way because I don't want to see your face. A few things on this. Number one, I think we can all agree that if you're a Raptors fan, you pay even a passing interest in the team, that you've not been a huge Darko Ryakovich guy or girl. I, my mom, I want to, I, uh, it's too far back. I should, have, I should have thought of this before. Even my mom, my sweet mom, Raptors fan, diehard Raptors fan, watches every game, sent me some snippy texts about Rayakovich. And as far as like a, a nice lady texts about a coach, like, I'm not really sure this guy. Yeah, we're all not really sure. Every conversation I've had with someone that involved Rayakovich was, ooh, raps? Mm, did they, huh, this guy? Him? It's the Arrested Development when he dates maybe her, that's the way that we've felt about Darko so far. Mr. Nice guy. Pizza party guy, end of game mismanagement, stubborn with the rotation all year long. Some pretty, some pretty cringeworthy clips. Yeah. Just happy. I'm just happy to be here, dude. Player development guy that can't, you know, 
<laughs> that wasn't developing the the rookie, uh, wasn't getting the rookie in the games. Anyway, um, I, I don't think that people were overly positive about Darko Rakovic. Obviously, some one, there's going to be one or two of you that are listening to this that just lose your minds, lose your tops here and that. And like, I always like Darko, give him a chance and blah, blah, blah. But no, it hadn't been the best start to a career. Like, it just hasn't. The Raptor season has been a really, really tough go so far before this trade. And Darko was a storyline for this team. For him to go scorched earth at a media conference on officials and basically hit checkpoints of everything a Raptors fan wants to hear, he might be the most popular coach in Raptors history now. (laughs) He might be number one. He may have skyrocketed to the very top because of this, the way that he handled this media conference. I will say... To me, when I first, my first initial reaction was, whoa, that's, that's a lot. So that's, that's a lot, but it was pretty sweet. It was pretty sweet. The line of they had to win tonight. We, if, if they were supposed to win, why did we even show up? That's a bold statement in the era of sports gambling and in the era of post Tim Donahue in this league and specifically considering it's the Lakers and LeBron, the number one team we are all most suspicious of. And that, again, it does involve a referee that the Raptors have history with. I, the league does not want him doing that at all. Because guess what the number one topic on every single sports show today? Is it going to be about the Phoenix Suns just pending implosion? And Kevin Durant probably... Uh, how many weeks away are we from a Kevin Durant trade request? I'm saying... Over under is three and a half. We're three and a half weeks away from another one of those Woj tweets. He had the first one where he's like, eh, maybe. Um, the Lakers were a loss away from people going, man, this, these guys have built their team around size and centers and they can't even beat the team without Yaka Pertle. They can't beat the team that's playing Thad Young at center to start the game who can't dunk anymore, <laughs> gets out in transition and lays it up, literally looks like me. That's what I look like in transition. (laughs) Slow down, slow down. Don't tear anything. Lay it in. Don't miss. Don't embarrass yourself. All right, cool. Smile at the bench. Get back on defense. That is signature me. I saw that and I went, boy, that is, that's, you're getting close when that's, that's what you're doing in the NBA. League does not want this. This is the story today. You go around the league. You're going to see everybody talking about this. You're going to see everybody debating this. This is going to be a massive story. This will be everywhere because this isn't just like the common griping about the officials. This is a, this is a massive one for Darko. If I'm him, when the league comes to me and starts to say, hey, this fine is going to be pretty massive, I go, this is a language barrier situation and I'm trying to play it off on that. Uh, I don't speak English. It's not my first language would be my defense of this because I feel as though the fine is going to be fairly hefty. But yeah, we're going to start to get more deep dive stats about Ben Taylor. And he is now, this is now a rivalry, Ben Taylor versus the Raptors. So congrats, Raptors fans. Of all the hating on officials and believing there's conspiracy, someone finally did emerge as the anti-Raptors ref. It is Ben Taylor. He is, he is our guy. He is our rival. And if you look around the league right now, he's the Raptors. It's not the Celtics. Stop. We, we've always done the Celtics thing. It's not the Celtics. The Celtics aren't the Raptors rival. It's not the Knicks. It's Ben Taylor. Anyway, um, I take I, I got Jake Fisher. Do I take a break? Yeah, I think I got to take a break. I got to take a quick break, and then the Siakam rumors are swirling. 
And I'll talk a little bit about them after, Ben. But I will just say this is you're, you're getting Siakam rumors just about every single day now, right? And they're usually following a pretty similar pattern of insider says Siakam is available or that he's been, he's going to be next since the OG trade followed by here's one of the most interested parties. And here's what the Raptors want. And then publicly saying, absolutely not. And it's a low ball. And for a lot of Raptors fans, you're probably wondering why, like even you, Armin, you're an educated basketball fan. I think, yeah, it was you yesterday, right? Because I've had multiple people talk to me about this. And they're, and they're going, are you kidding that the Sacramento Kings offered Harrison Barnes for Pascal Siakam? And you go, it, it, that's not quite it. But people are wondering, why, why would a team like the Golden State Warriors not be willing to include Jonathan Kaminga, a malcontent, like a, a malcontent on a team with Steph freaking Curry, who I think Kaminga is 22 years old. Like he's 21 or 22 years old. And he's already bitching about his role on the Golden State Warriors, a team that he's been actually, he's seen win a title on the team. Who, this is a guy, by the way, who's shooting 27% from three, I think this year, who has not been a fit with basically any part of the rotation. And is saying that to Steve Kerr, who has, was a part of, Michael Jordan's Bulls and Steph Curry's Warriors. And, and the, they're like, we can't include this guy in a trade. Why is this happening? Why is there all the lowballing? Why is there all the weirdness around the, the Siakam trade rumors? And I, I get into, I'm, I'm going to get into that with Jake Fisher. And I'm going to explain why this is such a difficult needle for the Raptors to thread and why there's way more to this than we seem to be explaining with the media whenever we're doing any of these rumors. Anyways, Jake Fisher, senior NBA insider for Yahoo Next. Always thrilled to be joined by our next guest, senior NBA reporter and insider for Yahoo, and of course, author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever, which all you got to do, pop over to Amazon right there, boom, good, cheap price, very worth it. It's Jake Fisher. What's up, brother? Heavily discounted these days. How are you, man? Yeah, it's, it's a good price. I mean, like we just missed holiday season, but I, I still highly recommend this book. Tons of good details, tons of good info, which I'm hoping to mine a little bit from you today because, man, this is – you've probably been feeling this now for quite some time where it's just like the Raptors being in the center of rumors like uh, over, what, now two years where it's just will they, won't they, will they, won't they. Before I jump into the next stuff, I kind of want to tie a bow on some of the OG things because I was reading a lot of your work and you were extensive in all of it. You know, you were a guy that was pointing out that the, the Knicks were the suitor that maybe this guy wanted for a really long time. But when reading it, the thing that keeps there's, – there's a couple things that keep sticking out to me. And one of them was just – it seems from your reporting that a lot of people around the league were surprised that the Raptors decided to move early on OG and Anobi. And we know the parameters that the Raptors are working within, like the types of packages that they wanted back. But do you think that there's potential this team – left something on the table here by acting earlier? Look, when we play revisionist history, there is always a chance, right? Who's to say some player, you know, knock on wood, doesn't get injured in some other situation, and that forces, you know, X team to decide, okay, we need that guy's replacement. We think we still have a chance to win a title this year. Like, I don't know, does I'm totally just spitballing here. Does Aaron Gordon get hurt, you know, in Denver? You know, does that freak accident with the dog rule him out for the year? That type of thing. 
But largely, I think the, the Raptors were, you know, they, they canvassed the league for what OG's value was in terms of draft pick compensation. It seemed like last trade deadline in the summer, and they understood basically what his general value was. And it seems like the Raptors have made it clear that they don't want to go into a rebuild. They think Scotty is a legitimate franchise face, and they want to still remain somewhat competitive and get established young players back who can grow alongside of Barnes. And I'm not so sure, like right now, trying to make calls about Pascal and what's out there that still fits that that. Uh, Bill, like I'm not so sure that New York would have been, or that the Raptors, excuse me, would have been able to find any like actual players with, you know, the contract situation for quickly is undetermined. But the general range of what he wants, I think, is out there. I think the league knows he wants twenty twenty five million dollars. So we think the Raptors know that they look at both having him and RJ on long term team controlled deals. Both guys under 24, I'm not so sure they would have gotten anything better. I'm really not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, fans here right now are pretty pleased with it. <laughs> it's been a notably different basketball team. They're competitive. Uh, all of a sudden, everyone just looks like they're playing better. Like The team chemistry has improved. So, so far, I don't think anybody's regretting it. But, it, you know, again, you're reporting the Pacers pretty heavily involved here. Do you know what they yeah. offered for OG? Do you know what their final offer was? You know, I was trying to pin that down for many an hour, and nothing I can confidently say publicly at this point, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but that's, that's I do good. think that that Buddy Heald is probably the, the major salary that the Pacers are most comfortable in moving right now. That's been my understanding from talking to many, many teams. So he's one name that I can almost assure you is involved um, you know, if, if if he's not the, the salary, my only other thought would be that Bruce Brown's name's come up a bunch. Um, as, as you know, I mean, he's a very tradable contract. Like that was something that his representation, I know, was aware of when they signed that deal. And that, as you have to be, that it was a balloon payment with next year being an entire team option. So it's a very, very movable deal. But I, I think the Pacers would only move that for someone that they really, really like, such as um, OG Ananobi. And you know, they're still technically involved in the Pascal stuff right now. So I, I would keep an eye trained on the Pacers in the roster if you are a Raptors fan. But I, I don't know if Benedict Matherin is someone that the Pacers are actually willing to put in a deal with Toronto for someone like Pascal or like OG. I was told this, like for both those players – with the chance to reach the open market this summer, I, I have gotten the sense that the Pacers haven't been willing to give all that Toronto was willing or was wanting back, which clearly New York was, um, with the sense that the Pacers could just theoretically go out and sign these guys on their own anywhere this summer, let alone the threat of like them being a free agent elsewhere. So why should they go give... Toronto, everything that the Raptors would want if they're confident that they have money to play with that those guys would look at come June 30th. Do you think, uh, like, again, we got good news that was revealed a few hours ago that Tyrese Halliburton's injury is only going to be week to week. I'm guessing that the Pacers Mm -hmm. are going to be fairly conservative with that. But 
yeah, just given where, like, do you think that their position in the standings would affect them at all when we're talking about a, a Pascal Siakam trade? Because I would guess that the insinuation, if you're making that kind of a deal, is that you would be 100% trying to retain this player. But there has to be a, a pretty large factor of how it helps you this year, too, no? For sure. And I think that's definitely a, a theme of the day so far in talking to front office folks wondering what that will do but two weeks isn't isn't a month and i think the general sense in that team has been from the get-go let alone even like this offseason before they were having success that the goal was to really take strides forward towards the postseason and the playoffs and the in-season tournament run seemed to validate that thinking internally and i only expect the pacers to keep trying to raise their ceiling around this guy because they think the dude's one of those, one of those dudes that will be a perennial all-star that you can win a championship with. Rick Carlos said that in his press conference or one of his press conferences in Vegas when I was out there for a tournament. Like they, they, they see championships when they look at building around Tyrese Halliburton, and not necessarily this year, but they want to be taking a step this season, get into the playoffs, and really start building towards that ultimate goal. Okay, so uh, this is my last one that's Pacers-related in regards to the Raptors. It's like you mentioned Benedict Matherin, right? And that's the name, and I know that you're not reporting that that's the name or whatever, but we've just had a lot of people here wonder if he's the guy that Toronto would pursue had it been for OG Ananobi or would it be for Pascal Siakam? And they just made this move where they bring in R.J. Barrett. And again, the, the, the ages and the timeline and the fit of, hey, we're not going into a rebuild tank. We're going into a retool. And the timeline with Barnes, like those players make sense. But do you – like is there actually – the thing that people used to fear here was that Toronto would put too much of an emphasis on Canadian players – because they were from Toronto, right? Rather than focus on like who the best was available. Do you get the sense that there is an added impetus for this? Is this just a byproduct of more Canadians being in the league, like good, more good young Canadians, that it's almost like happenstance? But what is your read on the fact that, yeah, Toronto brought in a Canadian player and then also potentially is targeting another? I think it's all the above. Generally, the Raptors, and this isn't to say that Free agents don't want to go to Toronto, but Raptors fans are very aware of the shortcomings and how the Raptors can get slighted by like an American lens and bias. And I do think that's something that Raptors personnel, you know, they're not they're not morons over there. I think they're pretty aware that it is just a literal geographical and geopolitical difference. You know, look what happened with Miles Bridges, for example. Like, it's something that just isn't... I mean, Raptors had to play in freaking Tampa for a season because they are not in the United States. It's just a a legitimate factor um, that I think is on the board, just like how Oklahoma City has to consider that their market is different from other teams, or even Denver. You know, some guys don't want to play in Denver because of the altitude. Like, it's not... uh, that's not a, like a like a real thing that's like so consistent out there, but I've absolutely heard an agent or two say my client doesn't really want to go there because of the altitude. So there's things like that that every front office has to deal with, and I think when you are representing the Raptors and trying to build something for Toronto and and that city to have something to be proud of, like having a player with Canadian roots. It's just a benefit like having someone who's from the tri-state area play in New York or Philadelphia or Boston type thing. It's, it's, I don't think it's anything overstated than what those things are, but that's 
also to say that like it's absolutely real. And I think that's the way that it should be. Like I, I think that I, I, I've never really understood the pushback of accepting that this place is different or the anger that some people get. I think it's because it often gets framed as something trivial, like. It used to be, hey, they don't get ESPN, and you'd be like, well, just why, just get a different cable. You can get that here. Like, you can get something. You can figure that out, and not really acknowledging all the differences for people, and just not just saying like, yeah, okay, obviously this is a bit of a challenge. I, I, I mean, it is a thing. I'm okay with them targeting Canadian guys. You just didn't ever want to have it where it felt like. Uh, earlier when Canadian basketball players started to really emerge in the NBA, that there was almost like this added impetus, like this was the only player that you could keep. Um, okay. So over the Siakam stuff, like outside of Indiana, uh, it seems like Sacramento is, has been a big suitor. There's been a lot of talk about them. Our Michael Grange has been reporting about, uh, yeah, the potential for a Warriors deal. But my thing here, you have Detroit as one of the main suitors, which I thought was really fascinating, but I'm going to start with this. This feels like a really difficult needle to thread for Toronto. Like, there doesn't seem to be an overabundance of suitors. They seem to want mm-hmm. a specific thing in players that can help them now or grow or that they have some certainty of, rather than acquiring just purely draft capital. There seems to be a few teams that Siakam does not want to re-sign with, and teams kind of seem to need that assurance. Like... How how confident are you that the Raptors are even going to be able to get something done here, considering all the parameters that seem to be surrounding a deal like this? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one that I got to choose my words carefully in how much I say, because I'm trying to also save some stuff for my employer in my next article. But I am starting to wonder myself about how – probable a Pascal Siakam deal is going to be for many reasons, but uh, number one is just his looming for agency is complicating matters. It's just, it's just what the case is when you talk about a player and his representation that has signaled since this summer that he only wants top dollar and that that is pretty much the top priority in that side of this equation. So the threat of him being a potential rental, if you're Sacramento, for example, is really scary. And it's going to make a lot of teams be wary of giving the best offer possible. That's just going to blow Toronto away and make them make that deal happen. So it's only January 9th. We'll see just like we were talking about with the OG you know, timing and figuring out if that was too early or not. Like, so much can change between now and then. But right now at this juncture, yeah, I'm starting to have the same questions of if the rappers are going to be able to have someone meet their asking price. And then what does that mean if that doesn't happen? What 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 happens if Pascal Siakam is still on the Raptors come February 8th at 3.01 Eastern time? Well, this is the follow-up with this, though. It's like, why the... And I don't want to use posturing in the sense of, like, why the posturing from Siakam's camp in, in, like, a derogatory sense, like, he wouldn't actually follow through on these things. But when he's saying top dollar, it seems anyways, from a lot of the reporting, that it's like, there are a bunch of markets where he, he's, like, trying to make himself, like, I don't want to be there, or I'm not going to resign there. And we keep hearing these things. And I'm like, wh- why is he putting it out there that there are places that he wouldn't play if, in fact, what he wants is top dollar? Like, what, what does he have to gain from this? I think 
One thing that gets tricky in trying to figure out why certain information comes out is that a lot of information that comes out is either very thinly sourced and like speculative and not actually even coming from the horses now. So that is something I always try to be super wary of and trying to like piece together what the motivations are behind information coming to the surface. That being said, like, that is what my job is. So I understand why people are trying to uh, connect those dots because it is interesting to hear, okay, why are they do, Why are they making the financial threats? Like, they, I, they, there must be some type of goal. And I think the only real thing I can say to that that I, like, believe and I think is a, a real factor here, like I was saying, is I really do think just getting the most amount of money possible right now is what is going to be at the top of Pascal's priority list at this juncture when he, if he were to reach the open market. And so I'm not necessarily thinking it's like, I don't want to go to these markets. It's I'm not, I think it's more of these are markets that either won't be willing to pay me a max, or I don't think is capable of doing it because of their cap you know, restrictions or whatever. And there are plenty of options that seem to be, but they're comfortable with waiting to see happen come, you know, June 30th when he could just reach the open market like Fred Van Vliet did a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, I I think that when we're talking about, like, where information comes from, I feel as though his camp has done a very good job locally at making it seem as though he doesn't want to go anywhere else other than play in Toronto, right? And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think for th- a while that was the case. I th- yeah. And I think this summer he wanted to be rewarded – by the franchise that he helped win a title and he's been their standard bearer and all that, you know, stuff. And it didn't come. And when it didn't come, and also I think I don't have the TVA so fresh in my mind, but I believe that at that time, Toronto was the team that could have offered him the most of anybody because of that hometown drafted whatnot. So I think that was as much of a factor in anything, but Toronto or nowhere not just necessarily rappers are nowhere, but that, that Toronto had much more money that they could have afforded him. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. And I'm not, again, this isn't trying to disparage Pascal Siakam. I would be trying to do the same thing. But at the time, it was like, hey, man, this is where you're comfortable. This is where you can get the most money. And this is where you had the most opportunity as a, a player, right? This was his team. But now it's quickly evolved into Scotty Barnes's team. They're clearly shifting into a different era. Uh, his, yeah. uh, like, his co-pilots and Fred Van Vliet and OG Ananobi are now gone. It's clear that it's, he's, you know, it's the, the world is moving on from Pascal Siakam here. And so, yeah, I just, I don't really buy the position anymore of like just wanting to be in Toronto over other places. I think it's more of what you're saying in terms of trying to maximize that value. I guess this, the second question off that though, is why the reluctance of some places to give him that money, including Toronto to a certain extent. Cause like, you know, you see a report like, uh, R. Michael Grange say that the Warriors are like are really reluctant to give up a guy like Jonathan Kaminga in a trade for Siakam. And again, that makes sense, I guess, if yeah. it's a rental player. But Siakam is like an All NBA talent. He's one of the best twenty-five players in the NBA. Like by pretty much every yeah. single measure, he's shooting the ball better. Like he's been a pretty good teammate. He's an NBA champion. He fits with a lot of different teams. Like is this like beyond just the contract stuff and the fact that he's going to be expensive? Like, is there something about him that executives worry about? Like, why the consternation over paying this guy when just about everybody in the NBA now, you know, you don't bat an eye, you just pay him? 
Yeah, I think it's the complications that are coming with the second tax apron that kicks in next season with the new CBA. Uh, I think it's, you know, Golden State, for example, a lot of these teams that view him as a missing piece, they already have two or three guys above him on the pecking order that Mm -hmm. are going to make their team even more expensive if you're throwing that money at Pascal. I also think for him in particular, it's the fact that he is approaching 30 and before this last recent stretch where I, I don't know what he's at right now, but as I wrote it before Friday, he had made 41% of his threes over his last 15 games. Like before that he was, you know, down to like making a quarter. It was, it was dreadful from deep. And I think as he's eight, like if you're pay, if you're trading for him and paying for him, you're thinking about adding Pascal Siakam on your team for the next four years. So there's definitely a, a bit of a, hesitancy about someone that you're worried if the shot isn't going to be a viable threat as in theory as athleticism and effectiveness generally declines Mm -hmm. yeah again that uh that all makes sense so then why a team like detroit because frankly like i don't want to say it's this bad because i think siakam will age better but it feels very blake griffin 2.0 for them to make a move like that yeah i mean and it might be that's also just weird. I mean, the Pistons are the worst team in the league. They have the worst losing record, losing streak in NBA history. They're going to have plenty of money to spend in free agency. And they don't, in theory, I mean, Jalen Duran is a keeper for them. And I do think they're very confident in Duran and Kane Cunningham being on the bookends of their lineup at the one and the five. But everything else there seems very undetermined. So might as well go out and spend that money the biggest way you can. Do you think they're, like, again, I know this is, like, highly speculative, but do you feel like as the longer this goes on, the more the Raptors open themselves up to the potential of taking on draft picks? Because, like, the, the thing I don't understand about the wanting players over picks thing is, well, you can also turn picks into players, right? Like, it's it actually gives you more you time can. and some flexibility. Yeah, you can, but it is easier said than done. Like, ask sure. the Portland Trailblazers who two years ago tried to trade the number seven pick and uh, last year tried to trade the number three pick for something. Ask Golden State back when they had those two first-rounders and the number two pick for that ended up becoming Wiseman. It's it's not so easily said and done. Like, I know Drew Holiday went to Portland for two picks you know, this summer, but they also got Malcolm Brogdon back and Robert Williams that they thought they could split. Like it's, it isn't as simple as just like, Oh, we have two first round picks. We're just going to like go get somebody because if they're that good, the team's going to want them too. you know? So I understand the logic, but the, the value of a draft pick and a future draft pick is interesting in that it is so fluid. And yeah, it's like, Oh, what this could become, this could become, a top five pick in this draft. Well, I, I doubt 10 years ago or, you know, even seven years ago in the first 2024 first round picks were getting traded. People had any thought in their mind that this would be considered one of the worst drafts in the last decade. And now 2024 first aren't that valuable, you know? So it is, it isn't such like a straight calculus or just like arithmetic to say, Oh, I'd rather a future pick that I can turn into a guy. I think, like on a draft or a trade valuation board, like the established young player who's already has a track record in the league on a team controlled 
contract is probably universally accepted over like aside from a pick that is expected to be a guaranteed, you know, top three pick in like a draft in the next two years that are both considered great. Yeah, again, it just it just seems to really add to the that needle that I'm trying that I was explaining, like why it's so difficult with Siakam. It's like his contract, his age, his reputation on the league, the way that things are going with Toronto, what they're looking for, but also like you have this weak draft class that if you're Toronto, you already traded out of. You already evaluated it in a sense yeah. where you said, "Yeah, we'll give up our first because we want Jakob Pertl." Like that's how little that they viewed this or like how low they viewed this draft. And so, yeah, when you start to get into the lack of certainty over the next few years, especially with dealing with some of these teams that, you know, are looking obviously to make a title run. uh, I I think it gets hard to tell your fan base, Hey, we lost Pascal Siakam, but don't worry. We've got the Pacers 2027 first round pick. (laughs) Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, That's good. I was even having a conversation with someone today, actually like a friend of mine about how, like Oklahoma City acquired all these draft picks and they've got a million of them and everyone's like, make a trade, make a trade. And I'm like, what trade do you want to see them make right now with those picks? Like, what, what do you even want with it with considering the way that they've grown their core? So yeah, I think that's, that's well said. Do you, think, do you think anybody is out? Like when people keep doing the whole, like you've, you've put together the main suitors that you think they are, which is Indiana, Sacramento, and Detroit. Um, when people, when, when we get these reports of like, hey, this team's now out, this team's now out, how do you perceive that stuff? Yeah, I think no one's out right now. And I, I would throw Dallas in the mix as well. I don't know how serious they are, but I, I definitely keep hearing Dallas. So those are probably the four teams. Atlanta, I, I, I like I wrote last week, I'd rule them out. But I think that's because the Hawks are out from uh, – we're not trying to like – really add to this team right now are trying to sell as opposed to add. So that, that, that's the only scenario where I'd say this team is out. When it's a Sacramento or an Indiana, someone that, that have clear benefits to win right now, they have clear goals to win right now, and he's one of the few all-star talents that are actually available and gettable in the market, they're going to call back. There's going to be a conversation again. Um. That's the other part of this. Is how much do potential sellers affect this thing? Like we, we have the potential for a Donovan Mitchell to be happening this off season. We have, you know, Dejounte Murray that is like pretty widely reported as available this entire time. Is is there a domino that needs to happen here for Siakam to move, or is he the domino? I think the only domino bigger than him is Dejounte Murray at this point, and it does seem like because he has this long-term contract where he signed an extension this past summer that doesn't even kick in until next year. Four-year deal, under $30 million. That is a trade shift. He's two years younger, I believe, off top of head. I don't know with like the months and days, if it's closer to two than three, but he's at least you know 27. Uh, I, th- I think all of that makes him uh, generally more... Let's say widespread trade candidate than Pascal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, Dejounte is barely twenty-seven, like, or that he's he's closer to twenty-seven, and yeah, uh, Siakam is twenty-nine. Um, so yeah, I think there's at least two years apart between those two players. Uh, okay, some some quick rapid fire before I let you go. Um, <laughs> the guy that is a little lost in the shuffle here is Gary Trent. Uh, it's like last year, hey, can you get anything for Gary Trent? No, not really. Uh, the Raptors do need shooting. Uh, there, there has been some upticks in his play, but what? how do you view the future of Gary Trent with the Toronto Raptors? 
I think they are definitely open to moving him. To your point, it's going to be a matter of what can they get. I haven't heard his name come up at all yet, so we'll see if that changes. But uh, for now, like I've heard plenty of names who are less consequential to me than Gary Trent would be on a championship team right now. So mm-hmm. um, it's a little, it has been curious that his name hasn't come up at all. Yeah. Um, the other part of this is the Raptors trade for quickly. And a lot of it is, again, you're reporting that he wanted $7 million per season more than the Knicks were offering. Uh, do you think, like, that's the Knicks. That was the organization that drafted him. He loved being a Nick. Do you think that number goes up materially uh, when he's negotiating with the Raptors on an extension? I do if he continues to deliver at this starting caliber level. I think there's a real Jalen Brunson type leap that's possible for Emmanuel quickly in Toronto. And I think a large reason why the Knicks were not willing to meet that $25 million number that he's looking for is because they were weary of the long-term pairing of Jalen Brunson and Emmanuel quickly together. I mean, honestly, not so dissimilar to what Sacramento thought about Tyrese Halliburton and De'Aaron Fox. So I'm not saying that I think quickly can become Tyree Taliburton or Jalen Brunson, but like I do think the upside is there. I, I think the upside is there for him to be a legitimate. I mean, there's a guy I know at the Knicks who's really smart person who I very much value their opinion on basketball, who said he put the, the, the over under on Emmanuel quickly career all-star appearances in his initial reaction to the trade at one and a half. So if he's, at that level, I think $25 million would be a steal for the Raptors. Yeah, uh, and I think that nobody's going to end up griping about that if that's the case. Uh, last one, and this is for my producer, Armin, who was blowing you up, making <laughs> sure that you came on. He's a huge Lakers fan. Uh, I keep making fun of him because I think that the only move that they have to make is for Zach Levine, and I don't think that that will work out well for them, uh, even though on paper there's some belief that that will work. Is there a move the Lakers can make other than Zach Levine or trying to rush Bronny up since LeBron says he could play for them tomorrow? (laughs) I appreciate you, Armin. Uh, I'll say it's not going to be as exciting of an outcome, but like, can they turn D'Angelo Russell into Terry Rozier? I don't. I think the Raptors. I think the Hornets. Excuse me. Could probably get better than D'Lo in a first form, but I don't know. Like at a certain point, the market will speak, and I'm not. I'm not sure how many teams are willing to put a first round pick on the table from Terry Rozier right now. So is that something that's a little too rich for the Lakers' blood? Probably. I don't think they think about using a first round pick to get someone like uh, of Terry's uh, caliber. But he's on a you know interesting contract and. He kind of fits that mold of another secondary score creator. So if it's not Levine or DeJounte, I don't know. It's a, it's a name of the math works at least. See, I I love Rogier. I'm a huge fan. But he also is the type of guy where it's like you, everyone's always like, oh, if you put this player around LeBron, LeBron will get them to play ball, right? That's like anybody. Like that's even part of the Levine thing is, hey, LeBron will get him to play defense. LeBron will get him to be more selective with his shots. I don't think that there is a person on earth that could get Terry Rozier to play differently than the way Terry Rozier plays. And I feel like LeBron would take the, there would be a quote that would be going around the internet uh, like a, yeah, passive aggressive comment about uh, Terry Rozier's game from LeBron, I would say within a week and a half. Like that would be my total over under set if they do make that trade. But that is an intriguing one. Uh, Again, 
the book that you can go grab today on Amazon is Built to Lose, How the NBA's <laughs> Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Uh, again, available wherever books are sold, but I think that's the easiest way to grab it. Uh, Jake Fisher, Senior NBA Reporter and Insider for Yahoo. Thanks so much for making time, and we look forward to uh, reading that piece on Siakam, buddy. All right, there he was, Jake Fisher. Good stuff. Really enjoyable chat. Okay, so quickly, just to, to recap this before we take a quick break and then talk to Aaron Bronstenner, who is uh, the newest hire at Sportsnet. And it's very much getting like the, 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 the car wash treatment. It's very sexy stuff. I want the car wash treatment someday somewhere. Um, it's, this is a pretty easy thing to summarize. It's not that these teams don't want Siakam. A lot of these teams want Siakam. Do we inflate? It's, it's weird. I think Siakam is both underrated and overrated a little bit at the same time, right? It's like, He's underrated in the sense of, is he one of the better guys in the NBA today? Yeah. Is he a great number two? For sure. He's not a number one. He can have nights where he looks that way. He can have nights where he puts it on and all of us go nuts and say like, damn, that's the Pascal Siakam that you can't settle for. And, and that's what makes it difficult from an optic standpoint is it feels like you can be trading a guy who's made small NBAs. I don't think that he's one of the 15 or 20 best players in the NBA anymore. Like if you just look around the landscape of the league, there's a bunch of guys who have passed him by. I also think that, man, if you're, if you're that good, and again, we've established he's not a number one, but a team with you and Scotty Barnes shouldn't be, what are the Raptors today? Seven games under 500? Eight games under 500? Something like that. And again, some bad breaks there, whatever. But ultimately, that is the team. He's probably somewhere between 25 and 30 among the NBA's best players. A really, really good player. But Jake outlines it pretty well. He's going to be turning 30 years old. I think he'll age fairly well. Like, I don't think that he's somebody that I'm, uh, he, he's really healthy player. He's athletic as hell. He's actually, if you we're talking about elements of his game that are underrated, it's his athleticism. The guy can get up and down. He is just, there's, there's some guys you watch them move and they're so fluid. And Siakam is one of those guys where it's like, he, he's like a, he, he runs like he's a distance runner, right? Like that he's trained to, actually run properly as a big man smooth player just gonna be fine i think into his 30s but still if you're talking about a max contract you're saying okay so the guy is given been given the opportunity to be the best player on a on a, on a good team who uh, that did have fred van vliet that did have scotty barnes that did have og Ananobi, and they they underperformed he's kind of up and down the shooting is not consistent some nights it's great and lately it's been awesome, but it's also slumped at times. You, you can't really just say he's a knockdown shooter, right? You could say he's an all right shooter, but he's a streaky shooter. Let's put it that way. He hasn't been great at the end of games, and maybe that would be different with a co-pilot who is. He's a really good defender, not a great defender. Again, I would say that he's... <sighs> saying inconsistent feels unfair, but I mean like top-tier inconsistent where... It's you can get all-star level caliber play from Siakam or you can just kind of get meh on a, on a bunch of nights. So if you're a team and you're being told, hey, this guy wants the max contract in an era where there's going to be more and more punitive salary, uh, sal- a more punitive salary cap, that makes the equation a little bit more difficult. So if you're the Sacramento Kings, are you saying, okay, we're going to move Keegan Murray and then have our team be Sabonis, Fox, Siakam, that we're going to end up paying in a luxury tax for? That's kind of tough. If you're the Golden State Warriors and you've already been repeater tax, repeater tax, repeater tax, are you going to trade so you get Siakam 
and then go into that repeater tax moving forward with Steph Curry. Like, no, it only works if you know that this guy is going to take a little bit less and you're moving off of a contract and you're making sure Chris Paul, he's going to be coming off the books, but maybe you're not bringing back Clay Thompson and that's a difficult one to figure out. Like, there's not a lot of teams that are going to want to go into the tax for Pascal Siakam, especially when the NBA is this wide open. So for him, if his position is going to be, I want the max or I'm not going to resign with you, it's going to make things really difficult for the Raptors when we're talking about a trade here, especially considering the Raptors don't just want draft pick capital back. They don't want, they don't want lottery tickets. They want some kind of a young quality player to help build out what they have right now with Barnes, Quickly, R.J. Barrett. And let's just say Grady Dick for argument's sake, even though. You know, like I just saw an ad for the G League and it's Grady, it's, it's Grady Dick. It's like, when will this end? <laughs> when will, next year? I hope so. Anyway, it's, this is going to be a tough, this is going to be a tough trade. The real answer is if the Raptors were going to handle it this way, they should have dealt Siakam earlier as it always is. They should have made this decision earlier. Like they should have with Fred, like they should have with this. And now that they're in this position, it's just, whew, I, I don't know what they do because the team is moving on past, past Siakam, you know? And, and we can all say, like, the team looks more entertaining with him here now, but it's a, it's a young team and he's going to be turning 30 years old and they're returning into Scotty Barnes' team. Tough to envision him being around, too, and the, and the awkwardness surrounding that. So we'll be covering this a lot more, but, yeah, not an easy one. Anyways, quick break, then Aaron Braun Center. I'm meeting Aaron Braun Center for the first time as he's walking into the studio. He's saying something to me. I'm like, I'm on air. It's all right. You look good. It's a nice suit. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, so these are adjustable. You can pull it wherever. Armin's gone. I guess we should be sitting over here. Oh, no. This is a... No, we're good. We're good. I got a red light. Okay. This is Armin. Turn that mic off. You see the one red mic? That's off. There we go. Aaron's got the right mic. You can pull that sucker closer to your face. All right, beauty. Yeah, you can just like, well, like this. We're good. Boom, boom. All right. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, JD. I, Look at that. I hey. appreciate you showing me well, the Nice ropes. to meet you. Nice to hey. meet you, too. I've heard a lot about you from uh, Aaron Karolnik, uh, okay. someone you went to uh, college with, Adam I Martin. did. Yeah, I know both those guys. Yeah. And what'd they say? They, say. Said, they said that I should avoid you at all costs, yeah, but here I, was gonna I am. Say. I was, th- those two guys are <laughs> not good. Actually, Adam Martin is a sweetheart. Karolnik? Yeah, I Adam. <laughs> no, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can't imagine he said very flattering things. Okay, so you guys are here. You're doing the car wash. You like the show pony today. This is in, how, does it, how does it feel to be the bell of the ball? It's great. I used to set up car washes back okay. uh, at my previous job yeah. at an employer that shall not be named. Yeah, but, doesn't uh, exist. That, what are we talking about here? Yeah. Uh, but so it's cool to be on the other side of things. It's cool to be uh, yeah. you know, brought around. You got a, you got a PR person. Yeah, Claudia is awesome. She's bringing She's you around. Like, Hi, Claudia. Nice yeah. to meet you. Way to, way to do this. Driving everybody around. You're getting chauffeured. I'm well, basically... I, no, I drove myself here. Let's, okay, let's you not drove get yourself? carried away. Because I was going to say, you've got, like, you, you actually have some, like, Kendall Roy vibes going on today. Like, the suit. Well, I, thought, I, I feel like I, I'm a pair of sunglasses away from looking like that Tinder swindler guy. Do you ever watch that documentary, <laughs> yeah, the Tinder, yeah, Tinder swindler? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very different, the Tinder swindler yeah, than Tinder, Tinder swindler. So how you doing, man? I'm it's good, good to meet man. you. Yeah, yeah, obviously I've been a big fan of your work for like a long time. Uh, I'm a big MMA guy myself. I'm, I'm, I was thrilled that Sportsnet ended up getting the UFC. And yeah, I think that they made a really great decision that you're here. So yeah, for those of you that are just listening right now, uh, I got distracted because I was yelling at Armin because his Lakers robbed the Raptors last night in a horrific fashion. Um, Darko was mad. 
Oh, Darko was very mad. Mm-hmm. Dar- uh, Darko was like pounding the table, doing the broken English rant. It was it was beautiful. Like you, it was, you know what, man, I, I like that because if you're gonna get fined, yeah, burn go the all bridge. Yeah, yeah, just you know. Yeah, the only thing I will say is I can't imagine that he's one of the highest paid coaches in the NBA. And so oh, when he gets that, absolutely. like it's it's one thing when you're Doc Rivers and you've had an entire career and they send you that bill and you go, all right, I can I can afford this. I got I got a kid in the NBA. I'll be all right. Do the coaches pay the fines themselves in these situations? Yeah. Like you're, you're going hard for the team. To. I know, but I think they have to. Like yeah. it has to come off because I think they garnish. I think they garnish the wages, and then you and pay you the, the bonus. At the yeah, end you get you pay the fine. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's some the fine bonus. There's some weird dealings <laughs> that they go on, but we've all got to pay the taxes, right? Like, yeah, we all for sure. Have the taxes. Okay, so um, I had the. I think it was the day. No, it wasn't the day the UFC was announced for Sportsnet, but had Mike Malott in here, right? And Charles Jourdain. I always try to French it up when I do the French names. I like it. Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. It's Charles. Yeah, Charles, Charles Jourdain. Jourdain. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a, it's a strong handle. Good nickname, strong handle. And I asked Mike and I asked Charles, like, hey, how can coverage be better with DFC? Like, you guys as fighters, hey, um, how do you see people having conversations about this? And where do you see the inefficiencies, right? Especially since fighters are usually the guys that are, are really good at, you know, self-promotion. And sometimes that's actually the best thing to do is just, hey, leave it in their hands. Like, let the two guys that are fighting in Toronto fight each other in the stance, you know, and mm-hmm. that'll, that'll promote the fight really well. But this is a time for you, right, where you're coming in and you get to be, what, what's your title? It's the head of... MMA reporter, yeah. I'm, I'm no, the but lead. The lead, lead that's MMA the one. Reporter, okay, yeah, because yeah. I was going to say, it's a sexier title than just MMA reporter, well, right? Yeah, they're not, they're not show you around. If you're the MMA reporter, then I guess you're the lead MMA reporter. Is that right? yeah. <laughs> you don't. You don't have a minion. You don't have any minions. Uh, not not reporters. Okay, yeah, that's true. That'd be nice. Yeah. Let's get you some minions. I feel like if you do a good enough job, hey, I'll give you a minion. There are more reporters than more the merrier. Buddy, right? I have some minions. It's good. It's nice to have minions. I was just putting mine in a headlock during the commercial. Right? Well, that's <laughs> just, good. Right? Well, don't don't hurt me too. Yeah, so no, no, no. Uh, okay, so then nobody from HR report on. All right, yeah, exactly. Armin, you're fine, right? You're next, all right. I did see somebody with a pair of binoculars just across the hall, making sure that you're you're, yeah. you're not. Uh, Honestly, people yeah. are checking in on me, but yeah, okay. So you come in here, you have. You have some more sway right now, right? Like the you, they want you here. You've established your career. You come to Sportsnet. You're the lead MMA reporter. Is there something that you know you've thought of for quite some time that maybe in other positions you wouldn't have had the opportunity to do, or a way that you think that the sport can be covered better that you're excited to explore now, given this opportunity and given that hey, this is like. It's it's early days of a partnership, right? This is kind of the time to make hay. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I look at it kind of like a blank canvas, right? Mm-hmm. I I don't really know how things function here, really, and really even at poorly. Well, even at my previous job, I I, I wasn't really sure exactly how things went. I, I was learning on the fly. It was really yeah. my first job as a reporter, right? So I, I like to think that I can kind of use that uh, the creative part of my brain to try to throw things at the wall here and, and see what sticks and, and see what we can do differently. You know, I, I think as rights holders, we get a lot of access that a lot mm-hmm. of people don't typically get. And that's why we get the, I guess, luxury of being creative. You know, a lot of the people that cover the sport that don't have that same kind of access, a lot of it is just kind of going through the motions. You know, at this time, you're going to get this. At this time, you're going to get this. For us, we can really plan in advance and come up with different ways that are going to be, 
unique in terms of covering the sport. Now, we we have had uh, a good amount of laneway leading up to next week's pay-per-view, so mm-hmm. I think that we're going to be pretty covered. There's a lot obviously going on right now in sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Hockey Day in Canada next Saturday that's on the same day as the UFC pay-per-view the week after is All-Star Weekend. So there's I like a lot how you know what's right going now. on at the company more than I do. You're like, it's Hockey Day. I was like, yes, yes, as we all know <laughs> that it was, that we all had it planned out. I think that's I think that's well said. Um, you got to be able to, if you're going to get the access, I feel like there's a responsibility to use it well. Right. Yeah, and I think a responsibility to the athletes to do right by them too, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they don't get to do that many one-on-one interviews in the same sort of setting that we're going to get with them, right? So uh, I think it's, you know, important that I, I do as much research on them as possible and come at it from a, a place uh, of an authentic interest. You know, I've always said interviewing people to me, I have the most simple mantra Mm-hmm. When it comes to talking to people, which is don't ask any questions that you already know the answer to. Like you only have a specific amount of time with these individuals. That. Well, it's just a matter of of coming at it from a place of curiosity, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you think to yourself, what don't I know about this athlete? What do I want to hear from them that I wouldn't otherwise know that I want to find out, right? Mm-hmm. I, again, it seems very simple, but a lot of people will ask interviews like, you know, how was your camp? And, you know, how how much do you weigh today? Those are very simple questions, and I think that they're still informative questions, but to me, I would rather ask something that I'm going to learn from. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that's what I think the role of a, of a good reporter or journalist or interviewer really is, is to come at things from a, a place of real curiosity. I think that that's really important is that there's a few things. One is that you are passionate about your subject matter because I think that if you're not, something ends up getting lost, and especially in this content climate where there's so much you can really tell whether someone cares about what they're doing or if they don't. But that is a major thing is I feel like also podcast era, and I've been guilty of this myself, is there's a lot of people who feel like what this profession is at times is like winging it. And there's, I think there's a little less journalism, right? There's a little less journalistic integrity. Some people always like take it a little too far. They treat this like this is, you know, war reporting. And you're like, yeah, it's sports. It's supposed to be a little bit more fun. It's supposed to be a little bit more loose. But there's been a bit of preparation lost, I think, because people go into it going, I'll, I'll figure it out. I know this sport. I know how to do this thing. And so approaching it that way, I think, is really smart. And I think that that's how you end up being the lead MMA reporter, Absolutely. all right, at the rights holder. That's mm-hmm. how you get that job. Okay, so, uh, by the way, Fight Night. Uh, you can stream UFC Fight Night and Fight Night prelims on Sportsnet Plus, available with the standard or premium subscription. There's actually a really good one coming up. Uh, I should do see my job better. But the the next Fight Night is like... Uh, I couldn't believe it. It was, who is it? It's Johnny Walker. Mago yeah, Mago they give the, yeah, the, the number rematch. two. Yeah, the rematch. I was like, yeah. oh, they're giving people that for free. Okay, that's an all right one. That's yeah, that it. was on the pay-per-view in yeah. Abu Dhabi. And that was like one of the big hyped up ones on the pay-per-view in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and again, for the pay-per-views, you can stream pay-per-view prelims on Sportsnet Plus with your standard or premium subscription. Main card pay-per-views are available to order and stream on Sportsnet Plus at an additional cost, but no subscription required. Visit www.sportsnetplus.ca slash UFC to purchase or just Google Sportsnet Plus. You'll find it. Uh, you'll, you'll get that. You'll get there. You'll find a way. Okay, so you just said it. UFC 297 is very fast approaching. Like all of a sudden it's here. It felt like, okay, it's pretty far. And now it's, it's just here. It's here. It's here. Um, like I'm interested in the main event. I think a lot of us are. I think that there's going to be probably some fallout from that when it comes to UFC 300 potentially. But I think that with a Canada card, 
you know, and just like they do with every country is, you know, you load up athletes from a country and you want to put them on a card. You want to showcase it so that the people that are in attendance or the people that are watching on television, they go, oh, this person represents us in the fight game. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are heading into this card, the, the state of MMA in Canada specifically. Yeah, I think that it hit a real turning point back at the Vancouver card. It was the first card back mm-hmm. in Canada since the pandemic. And the Canadians ran the table. It was 7-0. Mm-hmm. And Canadians have... Over the past couple of years since George St. Pierre retired and, and Rory McDonald went to Bellator, we've really been hungry for that next Canadian. They haven't mm-hmm. come along. And I think that on that night, that was when Mike Malott really established himself as, as that next guy. Now, of course, he's going to have to beat a really tough guy in Neil Magny, the guy mm-hmm. that has the most wins in the history of the welterweight division. I mentioned George St. Pierre a minute ago. Magny has more wins than him, mm-hmm. right? So this is a guy that is a seasoned veteran, a guy who's ranked. And Mike Malott has to close the show for the Canadians on the main card in Toronto where yeah. he grew up. There's a lot of pressure on him to perform. This is a guy who is getting finish after finish after finish. And he has to deliver the goods. And I think that he is somebody who we need to keep our eye on. And I think the other Canadian that's done really well, you could probably call her perhaps the female fighter of the year from last year. She went 4-0 in a single year. I don't think any female fighter has ever done that in the history of the UFC. Um, and that, that's Lupita Godinez, Lupi Godinez, I guess she goes by. Um, she's a Mexican Canadian. Her sisters are actually looking to become Canadian Olympians right now, but she is, is on a tear as well. She's ranked, she's fighting again soon. She's not on this Toronto card, but mm-hmm. she's somebody I think we really need to keep our eye on as well as, you know, in terms of becoming a challenger, she trains with Alexa Grasso who is the champion at flyway day in and day out in Mexico. And, uh, I think that she is really kind of, a one of the, the Canadian hopefuls that we have going forward as well. But it's been a while since we've really had these Canadian hopefuls and Malat's in a stack division. He'll be ranked in a stack division if he is able to get by Neil Magny. And I think that's really the first step towards him becoming the next big star in this country. Well, yeah, if he, he beats Magny, and by the way, he's minus 250 favorite. Yeah. That's so a, that's a big price. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's like the insinuation here is that this guy is very good. Absolutely. And, and I'll say that like, again, I'm a fan of the UFC. I was aware of him a lot. I didn't know that he was going to be, pushed in this way on this card or that this was going to be happening for him right now. But yeah, it does feel like he's the next guy that they're going to say is the next Canadian guy. But, you know, when I was talking to those dudes, they like Charles had a really good answer about the GSP stuff of how that hangs around fighters necks in this country of just, you can't just be a good fighter. You got to either be the next GSP or people are going to sort of ignore you. And, and I, I do wonder how that's going to impact these, this next generation of fighters of is, is this audience, are they going to really rally behind fighters that don't look like they're going to end up being champions? Well, yeah. And it's such a high bar, right? Because when you look at Canadians in general, like if you look at Canadians at MMA, you automatically equate that with George St. Pierre. Like if mm-hmm. you look at Americans in MMA, not everybody's going to be expected to be the next John Jones because there are so many American fighters. Well, even fighters. Rory too, right? Because it was like, it went from GSP to, well, here's the immediate yeah, successor the guy, right away. Right. Like they just, you had it set up. And Rory had a lot of success. You know, he, did. he fought for a championship in the UFC. He won a championship in Bellator. Uh, he, I believe he won a, did he win a PFL tournament? He came close. And to had PFL one of the tournament. most iconic fights in UFC history. Perhaps and one the that best didn't fight ever. Way, but yeah. still it was one that we all remember. Absolutely. And I think that again, yeah, we're looking for kind of that next thing. And Malat really fits the bill. Good looking guy, welterweight, mm-hmm. uh, gets finishes, exciting fighter. You know, this is, that's the division that we've really looked at historically for mm-hmm. Canadian success is welterweight. So that's again, a lot of pressure on Mike's shoulders. And mm-hmm. when you get into that welterweight rankings, you look up and down 
you know, that top 15. It's just killer after killer, right? So he's got a lot ahead of him to become that next yeah. guy. And he's, he's not a young guy either. He's in his early 30s. So mm-hmm. he doesn't have a ton of time to really get to that championship level. That's, that's what I'm going to be very curious when it comes to him in this card is, one, I actually think he needs to get the finish. Like if he just, because Neil Magny is a knock him down, drag him out style fighter. Like that's not going to be an easy one. That's a vet. That's a savvy fighter. It's a tough fighter. You know, that thing drags the later end of the fight. I think that'll get tougher and tougher on Malat. Smart, going to know how to game a little bit with the judges. Malat gets an exciting finish. All of a sudden, there's going to be a ton of attention on him from this country standpoint. All of a sudden, every single card that he goes into, people will be invested. I would think in this country anyways, that are real UFC fans. Like out of anybody that has, I would say the most to gain on this card, other than obviously the main event, I actually think that he's number two. Like this is, this is very much set up. I'm sure the coverage heading into it is going to be very centered around him. Uh, very centered around this fight. I think it's it's the number three fight on the card, right? Yeah, yeah. It's after I guess it's the last fight before the championship. Yeah. Fights. So a lot, a lot, a lot on his shoulders for him to get a finish here and to order to be able to secure. Like, yeah, it's a it's a pretty passionate fan base here. Like, there's a lot of people who are ready to dive. I think into the UFC or or have a fighter that they can call kind of their own or hope that they're going to be the next one to make a title run. So yeah, a lot to gain from Mike Malott. Okay, the the 300 implication here though. There's like some stuff with Israel Asanya right now. He's in court and he's saying, please don't take away my career for drinking and driving, which is, you know, really tough. But yeah, they dismissed it, actually. Yeah, they dismissed that it. Down, okay, yeah. so good for him. Uh, it feels like he's going to be one of the guys they put on UFC 300. And it's likely going to end up being one of the guys that comes out of this fight, correct? Is that your sense of things? Yeah, I think it has to be. I mean, the only other option is if he moves up to light heavyweight and faces Alex Pereira for the third time in MMA, fifth time overall, if you count the the kickboxing fights, and tries to become a two-division champion that way. Hmm. To me, I think that's... uh, Both of those options are great because you got, of course, the redemption story of him if he's able to beat... Uh, Sean Strickland, if Sean Strickland ends up beating Drakus, I mean, Sean mm-hmm. is a small favorite in that fight. Who do you like in that fight? I like Drakus. You like Drakus, eh? yeah. yeah. I mean, here's the thing. You know what you're getting from Sean Strickland. Yeah. He's going to pressure you. Yeah. He's going to push you backwards, and you have to be able to withstand that for five rounds, potentially, yeah. if, you, if you're not able to finish him, and that is really difficult to do, uh, especially a guy in Drakus who is known to get tired and who throws out uh, more volume, really, than anybody else in the division, mm-hmm. and, uh, sh- you know, Sean Strickland's a close you know, closely behind him mm-hmm. in that regard. These are both pressure fighters and guys that like to throw a lot of volume. So eventually one of those guys is going to crack, I think. Like, you know, you've got two pressure fighters, two volume fighters. And I think that Sean has much better cardio than Drakus. However, yep. Drakus did get surgery. I believe it was on a septum because he was breathing through his mouth in all of his fights. Mm-hmm. He, he was like, didn't have the same capacities as normal people. He was only able, able to have, I think it was like 10% of the oxygen level of your average person based on this, you know, surgery that he needed to repair it. And we saw in his last fight against Whitaker, he looked great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people have been sleeping on Drakus for a long time. And I am not one of those people. I predicted he was going to get the knockout win over Robert Whitaker. It was like a five to one prop for him to get that, mm-hmm. that knockout win. And I, I predicted that and people thought it was crazy. They're like, there's no way he's going to beat Whitaker. I've seen how good Drakus Duplessis is. I'm, I'm not one of the guys that have slept. And I, I think that he is a better fighter than Sean Strickland. But I also thought Israel was a much better fighter than Sean Strickland. Yep. I thought Israel was going to run through Sean Strickland. And Sean Strickland has made those improvements that are needed. And he's got perhaps the best coach in the game right now in Eric Nixick. And uh, I, I just think that right now, it's going to be very interesting to see how that, that shakes out. Yeah, that's I love playing that game of who do you think the UFC wants it to be versus Adesanya. Because I would actually... Strickland. 
They would they would probably prefer to be Strickland because he's going to do the most in promoting the fight, right? Like that's going to make it the loudest, other than the Pereira and one. It's a rematch, and rematches. Yeah, are yeah, exactly. It's a little bit more intriguing, but yeah, I just. I, I do wonder if they missed the mark a little bit on UFC 300 just from the standpoint of 299 is loaded. I think you actually even tweeted about it. You're oh, like, yo, look how loaded. I don't two- know how they're going to be able to, like, just based on jumping. what's available right yeah. now. I don't know how they're going to make it better, but I, I trust that they're going to be able to. Like, I, I believe that they've obviously looked ahead and they're not going to be like, yeah, let's just throw this on 299. We'll, but, we'll figure out 300 down the road. But why not put Connor there? Because it was like, he, it was so obvious. Like, well, put the return of Conor McGregor on UFC 300. I would agree, but I think there's got to be some sort of reason. Maybe his recovery is where I mean. it needs yeah. to be. I don't know. Michael Chandler's obviously ready. Yeah, Michael Chandler so, hasn't fought in a lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> so I waiting. imagine that there's got, that's got to be by design. Yeah. Because you, I agree with you. Uh, you would think that if you want to have the absolute biggest fight for UFC 300, you'd put mm-hmm. Conor there. Yeah, I thought that that was going to end up being a no-brainer. You're right. I, thought, I figured that there was something. I just was, like, hoping that we ended up getting this information or something that's going to be coming around right now. Like, I... If I'm the UFC, I actually want to make it public as to why you didn't put Conor McGregor on UFC 300 when you know he's going to be like the return of Conor. Yeah. That is going to undoubtedly do better than UFC 300. Well, I should write that down because yeah. I'm speaking with Dana White next week. And well, I'm there sure, you go. Well, uh, you that's get, a question hey, that, that should be asked. You, you, it fits your bill. I'm curious. You don't know, you're curious. <laughs> you don't know the answer to it. Yeah. And you're going to use the access exactly. properly. Hey, man, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you. I'm excited to follow your or continue to follow your work. I think that it's like, again, this place... This is a this is a good move by them. This is showing real confidence these sports at hiring you. So yeah, congrats on everything and good luck with the rest of the car wash today. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad that you have the enthusiasm for mixed martial arts and that there are a lot of people in this building that are passionate about it. You know, I, I was worried that I'd come here and there would be people that didn't really know the sport all that well. So it's great to have someone like yourself. And um, I, I have a feeling we're going to be doing this a lot more often. I'm yeah, really we will. Forward to this. Uh, I think there's a, like a lot of people my age who got to experience the rise of GSP. It's hard to have that dissipate. Like, it's hard not to love the sport when you got to experience it in that fashion. Like, it hit me in the perfect time. And, like, I, I cared about the UFC before, but not to the extent of when, you know, I'm watching George St. Pierre return to the Bell Center and it's to take on Matt Serra who embarrassed him and you're in a loaded bar and you're in your college years and everybody's chanting Olay in a sports bar in Ottawa. It's like those, those things tend to stick, right? Those things tend to stick. Um, again, uh, Aaron, thanks for making time today. Good luck with the rest. Uh, quick break, and we'll come back and hit what we missed. Honestly, Armin, I want you to apologize for the Lakers. Apologize for the Lakers because you wore your hat in today. You're trying to make a statement. You're trying to tell the world, like, look at me, look at me. I'm a Lakers fan. I'm trying to stick it in everybody's eye as they're dealing with a tough loss and as the refs robbed the Toronto Raptors. Your boy LeBron, did you see what his quote was? Yeah, I saw it. What do you think? I saw him say uh, they fouled more than us. No, he didn't say they fouled more than us. That's wrong. That is not what he said. He's, they asked him about the officiating in last night. They actually asked him directly about uh, the, the discrepancy. Because it was, again, for those of you just tuning in, Ben Taylor, the head official last night's game, rival of the Toronto Raptors, gave 23 free throw attempts to the Los Angeles Lakers in the fourth quarter alone. 23. Well, can we can we contextualize for a second? No. Because eight of those free throws were in the last 24 seconds when they're intentionally fouling. Nobody has said that this morning in Toronto media, I guarantee you. Yeah, guess why? 
Guess why they shot those free throws? It's because of the discrepancy from beforehand. So they had to add those free throws, buddy. All the points from before, the only way that the Lakers were scoring was at the free throw line. They were getting every single excuse that could put them there, and the Raptors were getting robbed of every single time one of their guys was getting touched. So yeah, no, there is no context for that because the only reason the Lakers had the lead, the only reason Scotty Barnes didn't tie the game with a triple is because they called a cheap moving screen call on R.J. Barrett. I said it in a vacuum. In a vacuum, that one would be the only one. But it wasn't in a vacuum. And it was also like, go... Run it was a bit floppy. No, AD flopped. AD, AD flailed. They, he flopped. Whole and flop. I don't like that call in the last minute. I honestly don't. No, it's Like it's you were cheap. saying, no, I, I, I honestly with you on that. I have LeBron sound, by the but way. But just uh, LeBron... Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, just... So they ask him about the fourth quarter free throws discrepancy, and this is what he says. Um, I felt like they fouled, and we didn't. Dude, okay. I like uh, on one hand you you go, well, what is he supposed to say? Mm-hmm. His team won, and it's a question. Hey, what do you think of the free throw discrepancy? I, th- of course, the refs did their great job. This is so rich, coming from the number one ref crybaby in the history of the NBA. This man, when the refs miss a call, takes to Twitter. He holds his hand like it's been dripped in lava. Oh, his hand is melting. And he holds it. And his teammates all stare up at the Jumbotron together. Oh, he holds it up to the refs. Oh, refs. Oh. I hate that we come back to that one because uh, that's the ref that's not even in the NBA anymore. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because LeBron Eric kicks Lewis, these... he was a Celtics fan. Because they found out. The exact, that's such a Lakers Reddit thread thing for you to do. LeBron calls bloody murder when he feels as though the refs miss anything. No, he does. He had a and paragraph tweet yesterday before the game, which buddy, is ironic. Yeah. That's the whole thing. If you weren't the number one crier, he's, this is the only thing I, I, I actually love LeBron. Okay. I, I, am fascinated by him just as anybody else. I have so much respect for the fact that he's 39 years old and he's doing this. Like, I actually think it's embarrassing that people compare Tom Brady to him. It's like, do you know how much more of an athlete you have to be to be LeBron doing this than Tom Brady standing behind an offensive line that you just took Baker Mayfield to the playoffs? Like, that was a stacked team. And yeah, Tom Brady deserves respect. He's the GOAT. He is. But when people do the whole, like, Tom Brady's the greatest athlete who ever... It's like, no, Tom Brady's arguably the greatest winner. But the greatest athlete is LeBron James. Like, he is... For him to be able to do this over this length of time, at this high of level, in the league of all the freaks, the freakiest league in, on planet Earth when it comes to sports, the number one most athletic athletes on Earth, without a doubt. Like, it's not comparable, okay? These guys, if you had to draft, take athletes from any sport and you apply them to a different sport, it would be NBA athletes, right? There's a reason why they go to college basketball and find the Jimmy Grahams and Antonio Gates is the world, and they're like, oh, right, these guys are pretty sweet. It's like, yeah, most of them could do it. Like I said, you need a soccer goalie. You need an NFL tight end, right? Like you need the best volleyball player who ever lived in five months, the best handball player in the world in two months. Like go to the NBA, find somebody. You'll you'll get it done. So maybe part of... Okay. Tons of respect for LeBron. But the thing, when people bring up the resume of, and he did it all the right way, and the only thing is the decision. The decision is meh. To me, it's like it was a bad PR move. He got bad advice. He was trying to raise money for Boys and Girls of America. He thought it was a good PR. It's a mistake. Like, I don't even criticize him for that. 
The big one is actually him with officials and the way that he flops and the way that he acts on the floor when he is the greatest player. He, he carries himself with very little dignity when it comes to the officials, like compared to some of the other greats in the NBA. Like I have it's true. to agree. I have to agree. And, and that yep. to me is actually the one thing in LeBron's, yeah, resume that I would look at and go, you know, I don't really love this about LeBron. That and his general manager skills because those are pretty bad as well, right? But that's not as a player. That's just the control he got from being a great player. That's, that's how he changed the game. But for him, the Mr. Crybaby ref to say, I feel like we, they were fouling 20, we got 23 free throws and we fouled once. We had one foul in the fourth quarter. We had one is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Like stay consistent then LeBron. What do they, what do you, you say? Keep that same energy. Yeah. Keep that same energy, LeBron. If you're going to cry about the refs every single night and then when it doesn't go your way, say, just, just go, Hey, that's officiating this league or something, you know, Hey, you know, we need to strive for better officiating. Just not. So when it goes your way, mm -hmm. then okay. They didn't foul. But if it was the other way, like imagine what LeBron would be doing. Imagine the tweets we would be getting from LeBron. Imagine the Emojis. stumping, the emotion. Yeah, dude, that's what makes me sick about this is if this was on the other foot, he would be saying, so you're telling me they didn't foul for an entire quarter and we did. And that's what drives me nuts about this. Stay consistent. At least LeBron stay consistent with it. I've been saying it for a while. Officiate is bad. Sometimes it goes our way. Sometimes it doesn't, but we need better from the officials. Not wow. We finally, we get a game that the officials dog it. And oh boy, finally the refs get it right. That's brutal. That's actually brutal, LeBron. That's embarrassing, dude. That's embarrassing. I agree with you. And here's like, it's been a week, JD. I don't know if you saw LeBron stepped on the three-point line last week. Yeah, they reviewed I mean. it. Yeah. He's been complaining yeah. since that happened. Won't stop. Cries nonstop about it. So he's quote tweeting Jalen Brown's reviews and like going on Twitter rants about the officiating. I agree. Saying. So then to come back and do that. That's what it looks bad on the NBA though. This is all on the officials. This isn't on the Lakers. This is on the officials because they saw this complaining for the past week mm -hmm. and then they decided to call the game like this. Like, obviously it looks like something's wrong. It's not like this came out of the blue. Yeah. LeBron's complaining for a week and then you give him all these whistles to end the game. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. I think it's brutal. I think it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's a, it's a really bad look for the league. And again, it'll just be swept out because you know why? Because it's the Lakers doing it, the Raptors. And that's what pisses me off about this is like, and, and that's where I don't, I, again, this audience knows me. I'm not, I'm not a panderer to, you know, Raptors Twitter. I'm not here to just be like, Hey, the refs always screw us over. And hmm, I, I don't do the ref thing very often. And I don't do the anti-Toronto thing very often. In fact, I just had Jake Fisher on and I was talking to him about, and this was, we taped that interview, obviously. And so it was the day before the officiating because otherwise I probably would have asked him about Ben Taylor, okay? And like the, the behind the scenes and last year and how this is going to manifest into this year. Like I would have done those things. Maybe we'll try to do that with somebody else this week. I brought it up even how I think that this fan base often, and it's just, it's a Toronto thing because we are a major North American city and we are involved in American sports and not all the other Canadian cities are like the other Canadian cities are involved in hockey. And so they feel like we're the big bad bully of the country, but with baseball and basketball specifically, there is a real inferiority complex that happens here. And some of it's fair and justified because Toronto has been treated poorly by players and media. And, you know, when Shohei Otani doesn't sign here, people say it's good for baseball. That doesn't happen in other places. There's a disrespect that comes with Toronto. And so you build up a callus, right? 
You, you have to, and you get overly defensive. But when you build that defensiveness, which this city has and the people here have and the sports fans here have, there are a lot of times where we react when we shouldn't. Like we act over the top with officials sometimes and with media narratives or somebody's taken out of context, all this different stuff. And we, we blow up about it because we think it's the same thing as whoever it was that wrote the show. Hey, not coming here is great for baseball. And that like, that was the stupidest, like it's just unbelievably unbearably stupid take and people will have it right. Like we, we get to, we get to eat those bullets sometimes and they feel like it's great in America. Right. We're the country where people go, well, is Wiggins a bust because is he too soft? Like that we're that country. Right. Or cause Canadians are too soft. It's, I get it. But what pisses me off about this one is that it's like, yeah, LeBron bitching about the refs all season long. It's been a story all season long and it breaks for the Lakers. And I'm thinking, man, if this went the other way, if the Raptors would have done this to the Lakers, we'd be seeing every single sports show lead with crisis in the NBA crisis for LeBron. He would be going on. He'd be tying it to the shoe. He'd be tying like to the the foot on the line. He'd be tying it to everything that's been going on. He would be campaigning for a month heading into the all-star game of just, this is what's happening. This is what's wrong with our league. We need the better officiating. We need this. And he would look like he's the champion for more equality in basketball or whatever, like more fairness in basketball games with officiating, better reviews, whatever it is. And instead he's like, oh, all the complaining I was doing, it worked for me tonight. Never mind about it. And every one of these shows is going to do the same thing where they're going to be like, Darko Rakovich, this is kind of funny. And boy, this is a crazy rant. And then it's going to go away. It's not going to have any staying power. It's going to be something here, but the rest of the NBA will move on rapidly. And yeah, that's where you do feel like, "Mm, I hate the Lakers. And I do, I hate the Lakers. And I also hate that the city of Toronto gets disrespected some of these times in, in, in these sports. Anyways, by the way, speaking of all-star games, I got to read here. NHL all-star. And it's coming. I think of NHL all-star as not just the city hosting and not the fun that we're going to have here. Cause I do think it's going to be fun. This is an event city. And the closer we get to this thing, it's going to be great. But also I think about it as when it's over, Joe wool will return and the Leafs will have two goaltenders again, which I'm really excited about because I'm, I'm afraid of what might happen this weekend. Uh, ahead of the 2024 Rogers NHL all-star game this year, we're, we'll be giving away family four packs of tickets to the NHL fanfare coming to Toronto, February 1st through the 4th. That's pretty sweet. Four packs, four packs of tickets. So families. So you're listening to this right now. You got a family. I hope. If not, thank you for listening, and I'll be your family, okay? But this is a four-day family-friendly festival at the Toronto Metro Convention Center offering fans of all teams and ages awesome activities such as the Rogers Hardest Shot Competition, special appearances by current NHL players and alumni. That's always really fun. I love the events for this. Uh, We're going to be giving away these four packs every single day on the Fan 590 uh, until January 26th, so make sure that you stay tuned for your chance to win again. That's a long time. Today's January 10th. All right. January 26th. Rogers footing the bill for this. Rogers, (laughs) Rogers is basically paying for this entire fanfare. So listen to this thing. And if you and your family want to go down, make sure that you keep it tuned to the fan 590. Anyways. All right. uh, Can I ask you one follow up on the Siaka or the officiating with the Raptors thing? Yeah, okay, is it going to be... No, Darko, no Lakers stuff. Yeah, Darko's okay. going to get fined, whatever, 50K, yeah. 100K, maybe, if they're really coming down hard. I, what I happens think... to Ben Taylor? Nothing? Does the, does the NBA... Because if they actually want to get the respect of the fans and they mm-hmm. care about how it looks, they have to do something. They nope. Ha- like, nope, they won't, because that's, this is one of the most frustrating things with all of these leagues. 
they protect the officials at all costs and there's never any accountability with these guys. And it's part of the reason why I hate officials like Angel Hernandez is the, like we can break it down. You're the worst umpire in all of baseball for like over a large sample set. They've got strong unions and they can't rock the boat with these guys because, and, and we know this too, is like, there's no good refs anywhere. You know, go watch college sports. Didn't you guys just watch the world juniors with hockey? Like those Swedish refs that we had, those, those guys in Sweden, like it's a nightmare everywhere. They're calling, they're, they're kicking guys out of games for clean hits. They're calling massive penalties at the end. Of, they call the spearing penalty at the end of a hockey game for a light tap with the stick. Like there's no good officials anywhere. So they know they're not working from a place of depth. And so they, they cower to these officiating unions. They don't do anything. They don't chastise them publicly. They put out the, the two-minute report is too much for these refs. They hate the two-minute report. They can't stand it. They can't stand that the league goes, look, you guys made mistakes. They hate it. So Angel Hernandez can be the worst umpire in all of baseball for years and years and years. Be famous, be well-known. You don't normally know an official's name unless they're bad, right? The best officials, you spot, you're not supposed to know their name. And what does he say when baseball goes, we want to move on. We don't want to put you in playoff games because you're bad. And this is the way it works. He's like, you're racist against me. They're like, okay, well, that's what are we supposed to do here? Like, that's what, what are we supposed to do? Like what, what the, the NBA keeps like Tim Donahue is the most disgraced referee in the history of officiating. Like he's publicly the most, the, the biggest cheater, the, uh, the biggest cheater of all time, all these different things. Um, who was his best friend when he was an official? Like, did you, did they go? Scott Foster. Yeah. Did they, did they fire all the officials? Scott Foster's still ref in NBA games. There's like, you know, and, and all this stuff around Donahue is, uh, as annoying and Donahue's always like protected his buddy, Scott Foster and all this different stuff. But it's like, you mean to tell me Donahue was like all those stories of him with the other officials. Like, where was all the other guys that ended up getting taken out of this thing? Like, no, Scott Foster refs today. He's in there. Important games. Like shady dude. And he still officiates NBA games. Just, it is the, it is, it is what it is. Look at, look at around the leagues. Hard to get officials out of these sports that are bad. And then you just say, well, who the hell are you supposed to replace them with? I think there should be more accountability. I think that the job should be super high paid, super high standard, super hard accountability. Make sure that you're doing the job right. I think there are challenges to being an official, right? Like it's probably not fun having people boo you, refuse, suck, who cares? Like whatever, Twitter, like, who cares? You're traveling around the world. You don't have to work all year round. You should be making a colossal salary. And for you to not be able to handle the critiques of players and the league and whatever, I, I, I don't get it. I, and sometimes I think the leagues, they do a really poor job with this because it's like the cover-up is worse than the crime in some of these instances. If the leagues just go like, hey, you know what? Uh, this official, it's hard because there should be degrees, but it's like if we report, if you do a report card, that's this bad. There's more to lose than just some playoff games. And we've even seen this with the NFL, right? What's uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the NFL official's name. That was the, the number one most popular hated NFL. I think he's also a Ben. I can't remember. Uh, but like for people asking, like, what, what can you do? You can't find them or whatever. Take Ben Taylor and tell him you're not a lead official anymore. You're still going to officiate yeah, in the NBA. It. It's no, it, it takes, that's the thing is you can't do that. Right. It's Brad Allen. Brad Allen is the guy. Brad Allen makes these aggressively bad calls on in, in standalone games. And they're like, no more Brad Allen in, in major games. Right. He does the lions thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And then what does the league do? They're like, oh, he's doing, he's gonna be downgraded. And then the next week he's in a standalone game. Like Brad Allen's back. Nothing, nothing happens to Brad Allen. 
They don't leak anything. They don't have any transparency with it. It's a secret cabal of the officials in every single league. So, yeah, I feel kind of defeated at some point. Like, I'm actually not a fan of more... I don't want robotics. I don't want more review. I think review sucks. Like, you hear Connor McDavid yesterday where he's like, yeah, zoom in, zoom out, 15 minutes we're going to spend on an offside. If we got to spend 15 minutes and it's probably not consequential. It's like, I agree with you. Often we, we opened up the Pandora's box of review. And a lot of times it's either spe- against the spirit of the rule or it, we don't get the angle. It causes more conscious. It's, it's not been seamless, right? It just, it doesn't, it just hasn't been. I actually like having officials. I think it's fun to be mad at the officials sometimes. Like I do. I think it's a great thing as a sports fan to be like, Oh, you suck ref. That's so fun. I don't want to lose umpires and have them be robots. I think that the cost to the fun of the sport would be more than the gain of getting every single call right mm-hmm. or than finding out, like, actually, we didn't get it right because these machines have to be calibrated a certain way. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not going to be a perfect – it's not going to be perfect. So I, I like having refs. I just wish that refs could have thicker skins, not – have any refs that want to be center of attention. It should almost be like when you're doing this job and you're applying for the NBA that it's like a personality test. You know how they have to like test cops to make sure they're not psychos? They should be doing the same thing with, with officials. Like, hey, are you, are you an egomaniac? Are you somebody that likes the attention? Are you going to just drop the puck in an NHL game? Or are you going to say, welcome to Lee, Connor Bernard, and mic yourself up? <laughs> like, you know, what kind of a guy are you? What's the proper answer here? So... I just, I don't understand why these leagues can't have some transparency, can't just, hey, you're making mega bucks in all these leagues. Pay your officials a ton of money, make it an incredibly attractive job, but also have it be accountable so that, and it can't just be off one game, right? Like you can't have it where it's like one game, it's a punitive thing. It's got to be, hey, we're grading you on 10 game samples or whatever, depending on the sport, a couple game samples. But if you do this poor of a job, we're going to have a public review and we're going to, you know, move you out of a spot or we're going to be able to say, or like, if you have a game like that last night where it's, it's this egregious, right? Where it's this bad, where it's this controversial that you go in and you have a meeting with the NBA, they go over your tape. And then if the fan base wants it, or if the Raptors want it, because it's going to be a big enough story here, you go, cause you got to have some parameters. It's like, where do you draw the line? That's a difficult one, right? It's like, what, where is the, if the, if the discrepancy is 16 to two, are we doing this? If it's, 14 to two, like what, what is the discrepancy? But if it's like this egregious where there's a huge moment where it's a massive missed call, I think if you, you as the league can be like, we met with this official and we've gone over the tape and here's what we think about this game. And this is, we stand by it. And you either go, we stand by it. We think that this person did a good job or we go, we counted 10 missed calls that would have gone this way. And we've fined this official five grand or whatever, or, you know, I don't know if they can do fines or, but something you're right. I don't know. Demotion for a couple of games, uh, miss a game. I, I don't know how it would work, but it's got to be something. Just be a little bit more transparent with your fans. I don't, I don't know what the, the problem is with that, especially again, in the era of gambling and sports betting, when you as a fan feel like, like the worst thing you want to do is have people say, oh, it's rigged. Yeah. It's rigged. It's Ben it's, Taylor it's, tonight. We're yeah, not exactly. It's Ben Taylor tonight. Yeah, it's Scott Foster tonight. The league put him here. They're trying to extend the series or they're trying to do this. It's like I hate those talks, man. I hate them when too. When I see Scott Foster, Chris Paul, like stats, I don't want to see that. Oh, I hate him too. I hate him too. I hate him too. Anyways, what's next? Let's hit a couple of things. Aaron Rodgers made an appearance on the Pat McAfee show yesterday again. Uh, first time Oof. after him and Jimmy Kimmel's feud is kind of turning up. Uh... I, I really, I actually really like McAfee's show. I like McAfee a lot. 
Uh, I think it's it's just it's fun. It's awesome. It's a it's a great success story. I think it's more of what sports media should be, which is people who are not taking themselves too seriously, just shooting it and having fun. Aaron Rodgers thing is just it's not fun anymore. Um, it's it's become this whole circus thing that has gone completely off the rails. I thought it was super lame what Rodgers did. He went on and he was like, no, I wasn't accusing Jimmy really of anything. I wasn't insinuating that he was on the list. I, I'm, I hope he's not on the list. And also, and I, and I went, man, you know, all you had to do was say, I'm sorry, I took it too far and move on. And instead he's like going over vaccine stuff from the pandemic. And it was so funny too, because there's one part of the interview where, uh, <laughs> where Rogers says some things and then clearly McAfee has been told by his bosses, hey, you need to fact check him on things when he's just starts spitting out stuff. Good luck. And well, that was what was great. And Rogers pulled the ultimate, I'm sorry, dumb guy move of, well, there are many journals and reputable sources and places. Like this guy is Mr. Pandemic, like won't get over it. And he can't cite one medical journal. Like he can't cite one study. He doesn't have that ready. It's like, no, because he's lazy and he's just reading this stuff on Reddit and Twitter and like he's going down these conspiracy rabbit holes and like, can you have some debates about some of the topics he's having? Yeah, I've had them with friends too. But if you're going to be that guy, you're going to be the face of it. Don't just be like stammering like there's many reputable sources and journals and then starting to go through like a crappy little public defense about some of these things. It was just, it's too much, man. And, you know, I, I'm curious to see how it plays out because the McAfee guys all end the interview doing like the the fist pound thing to Rogers. They're clearly very in his camp. You know, AJ Hawk is clearly a very close friend of his, McAfee too. They've built a lot of their show around Rogers. They're paying Rogers millions of dollars to do that show. But now it's getting to the point where like, you know, he's calling out their executives and I know those guys don't like it. And he's swearing on national television and he's talking about conspiracy theories and calling people. It's just at their own company, uh, you know, pedophiles. It's just, it's not good. And I, I think a lot of us are fascinated to see sort of how it ends, but I would love it if it was just McAfee going, Aaron, I love you. You're my buddy. This shouldn't affect our friendship, but I can't have this on the show anymore. Like this has just gone too far. We love you. It's been so amazing. But the problem is it's so good for the ratings and they get so many clicks and so much attention. I'm like, I don't know. Is this just not what they want? So I don't know. I they don't know what they McAfee do. They wanted McAfee to draw in the younger crowd and you have Aaron Rodgers, 40-year-old yeah. up there talking about Dr. Fauci yeah, in 2024. Yeah, no, but it's, yeah, a number of reputable, uh, reputable uh, studies. Is he the most hypocritical athlete you've ever, you've ever, you no, know? No, it's, it's hard. That's hard. LeBron. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> LeBron. With the phallic, yeah. but Aaron's yeah. with like everything. No, it's just Aaron's nuts. Anyway, uh, it's just too much. It's too much from Aaron Rodgers. I think that, yeah, the McAfee show should get back to being fun and they should ditch the Aaron Rodgers. Quick thing too. Yeah. I know we're almost done here. Mike Vrabel yeah. got fired yesterday by the Titans, uh, do you see Belichick getting in there or Harbaugh? Well, no, or? I don't think Belichick goes to the Titans. I don't think that's it. I just think that if you're the if you're the Patriots and you were really considering bringing back Bill, if it really wasn't a, a, a conversation or a continued conversation, this really complicates things because Vrabel is one of the coaches that you would think mm, this 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 could be this could be the next Patriots coach. And I, I'm very curious to see like how this domino impacts the the rest of the Patriots coaching hire. Anyway. Um, Subscribe to the podcast, leave five stars. Please do those things. Share it. Uh, reach out anytime, Twitter and Instagram at JD Bunkus, and I will see you tomorrow.